The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Last year on Sanctity of Life Sunday, I did preach through what the Bible says about Sanctity of Life, and that sermon is still on YouTube, I think, (laughs) titled Abortion and the Gospel. Today, though, I wanted to return to Exodus. It's been about a month since we've been in it. We've gone through the entire book, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. We left off in the law, the Ten Commandments. So let me sort of remind us how we approach the law, though we are the New Testament church. Don't forget the law is not a thing, but a reflection of a person. It is the character of God put into words. It also reveals who we are as people, which is the challenge of it. It further shows principles that are still applicable, how God works out his will in his world. And it shows us a pattern of God's relationship to his people. And so the law is so important. Before God spoke the law in Exodus 20, the law was still written on our hearts as it always has been. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, now we find ourselves inclined to receive the goodness of God in his revealed word in his law. And so if you are using a pew Bible, you'll want to turn to page 72. If you're not there yet, the title of today's sermon is God's name. And we'll look especially at that third word, that third commandment written for us in the 10. What's in a name is sort of the big question that this commandment deals with. What if I told you that this week I was reading the Raleigh News and Observer and I read your name in the newspaper? (laughs) You might want to go and purchase that copy and find out what they said about you or how you were represented. You would have concern about your name. Names are important. Words convey substance, but names do more than that. Names identify persons. Let me say three things about what names do. First, names are referential. No, let me say it this way. Names are relational. They share who someone is. You can address in communication with someone when you know their name. Have you ever had this experience where someone came up to you and addressed you by name and you could not remember their name? (laughs) You said something like, it's, hey, you. (laughs) And when you have that, there's a breach of intimacy because the relational address is not there. Names are relational. Secondly, though, names reveal character. Names disclose something about us. Perhaps what our parents thought when they named us our first name or our surname, our last name, may tell us where in the world our family came from or maybe even the vocation our family had, like Taylor or Smith. In fact, we often give people nicknames because it so identifies with their personality. And even if you don't give them a nickname, If I said someone's name, you would immediately have a feeling because you associate certain connotations to anybody's name. But third, names are, as I first accidentally said, referential. And by that, I mean names distinguish someone from everybody else. Even if you have to add junior, (laughs) whatever you need to do to show this person's distinct from everybody else, that's what names are for. Now, for the last several months, my wife and I have been working through names because we had baby number five to name. But Yahweh, the Lord, is not like us. He was not named. He's the only person whose name is his eternally. 
one that was not designated on him, but one that he revealed. In Exodus, at the burning bush, Moses said to him, who shall I say sent me? And the Lord said, Yahweh, or I am, the self-existent one, the one who was not named, the only one who eternally has always been the same, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the one who makes and keeps promises. So here we are today in what we tend to call the Ten Commandments. To be fair, in the Hebrew, they're actually just the Ten Words, the Decalogue, and we're looking at the third one. So look in Exodus 20, verse 7, as we focus on the name of the Lord. Verse 7, this is God speaking out loud at Mount Sinai in the presence of the nation of Israel. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I first want to focus on the word take. Perhaps if you grew up near church or around church, you were taught that the third commandment means you're not supposed to cuss or use profanity. You were taught that the third commandment has to do with your speech and only your speech. But the third commandment does much, much more than merely address our speech. That's why the English word take is there. It's the Hebrew word nasa, which is carry or bear. It's not the Hebrew word devar or amar, which would be Hebrew words for speak. In other words, the third commandment is not primarily or merely about our speech. It is about how we carry in our posture and our life, how we approach the name and reputation of God. Let me quote Peter Lightheart, an Old Testament scholar. He wrote, the Hebrew verb is lift up or carry or bear. We bear God's name on our tongues when we swear, but the name is also imprinted on our head, our hands, and our feet. We bear the name lightly with indifferent or disobedient worship with casual sex, Amos 2, 7, or when we steal, Leviticus 6, 2 through 5. Every sin is a violation of the Lord's holy name, the name he shares with us. Reducing the third commandment to a command about oaths turns it into a mechanism merely to preserve social order. That misses the key demand, which is to honor God's name. So if you have the notes from this morning, now I want to unpack a little bit what it means to carry the name of the Lord, it means much more than merely how we speak. First, it means that God's name is referential, not clouding. I know that's not what your notes have. I, I, I updated that some. By that, what I mean, the name of the Lord refers to a distinct person. So look in verse seven again. We're just focusing on this one verse, and it says, you shall not take notice the or the, the name of the Lord. So it's a definite article to let us know this is a distinct person with distinct value. It's a little bit like this today. Some words in our culture are trademarked or licensed. The idea is this concept is very special and so it's designated to be treated in a certain way. It is set apart as worthy. This is how the Bible talks about God. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8, verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Psalm 29, verse 2. Or as Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the first thing we should learn about the name of the Lord is it is distinct in its reverence and in its worth. But secondly, 
It is a name that is relational, not arbitrary. Look again in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord. Notice the word, your God. The name of God could never be properly approached apart from relationship. And notice the relationship if you look back up to verse 1. Look back up, please, in verse 1 of Exodus 20, the chapter that we're in. And God spoke all these words, saying, so this is God speaking out loud to his people. Look in verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God could only be properly reverenced in terms of a relationship, a relationship in which he is the Lord who redeems. He is the Lord of his people. They are known on relational terms. This week I met a man and I had the opportunity to talk to him about the Lord and the things of God. And then I, as I was talking to him about the Lord, he immediately said, oh, don't worry, I go to church. I said, that's, that's great. What church do you go to? What's the name of your church? And he said, I can't remember. I can't remember <laughs> the name of my churches, which was not the best start to that. That'd be a little bit like saying to me, Josh, what's your wife's name? And if I started doing this, uh, that would not be good. If I didn't know her height or things she liked, that would be very disconcerting. Not only does the Lord's name refer to a distinct person, it refers to someone you know relationally. He is known by using pronouns the right way. The person who has redeemed us. We might say it this way, not only must I know my wife's name, I must know what she means to me. I must not be able to say her name without her story and my story being inseparably intertwined. The Lord's name is so important because your life can never mean what it should mean apart from it. Your story can't be told apart from him. Even if this morning you're like, well, what does that mean for people who aren't saved? But remember, he is the creator of us all. All of us can only know life in reference to the Lord our God. So he is ours. So first, it is referential. Second, it is relational. But now third, this is probably how you first thought of it. It is substantive and weighty, not frivolous or empty. Look again in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God, and here's the key phrase, in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Hebrew word shavah means inconsequential or worthless. Now, if you've been with us through the book of Exodus, you probably know exactly what this means. Do you remember after God revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush, God sent Moses back to Pharaoh. And in Exodus 5, Moses came to Pharaoh and said, the Lord says, let my people go. Do you remember what Pharaoh said in verse 2 of Exodus 5? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That is exactly what it means to take God's name in vain. It is to live as if God is inconsequential. As if what God thinks doesn't matter. Now that becomes the key showdown throughout the book, don't you recall? By chapter 9, the Lord says this, I will send plagues so that everyone will know there is none like me in all the earth. He says of Pharaoh, I have raised you up so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. In chapter 14, he says that I will get glory over Pharaoh 
and his horsemen when they are drowned. Verse 18, and the Egyptians shall then know that I am the Lord. Here's the key. The Hebrew word vain, its opposite is the word glory. Vain means empty or weightless. Glory means weighty or meaningful. The Lord's name is only properly known as weighty, glorious, and exceedingly of ultimate importance. So how are some ways today that we might take his name in vain? And I'm going to give three categories, and I'll give some examples of each. Here are categorical ways we might take God's name in vain. The first category is in service of what is false, in service of what is false. In Leviticus 19, verse 11 through 12, God says this, Do not deal falsely with your neighbor. Verse 12, You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. One way we could take God's name in vain is using it when we're taking advantage of someone else. Think of someone saying, I swear to God that I did this or that I did not do that. That is exactly the thing that the Lord says is an example of using his name in vain. Another way God's name is used in vain is by doing what is wrong and claiming God's approval. In Ezekiel 39, God is so concerned that the Israelites have horribly misrepresented him that he says this in Ezekiel 39, verse 7, my holy name, I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Has anyone ever done something and claimed that you said it was okay and you didn't? Has anyone ever done something claiming that they had your approval and endorsement and it was the precise opposite of what you would have endorsed? Sadly, this happens with the name of the Lord all too frequently. Let's give a couple big examples from history. Many people... Um, claim the name of the Lord when carrying out atrocities like the Crusades or when carrying out atrocities like race-based chattel slavery, invoking the name of the Lord while doing things that are evil. On an individual level, many people have shot up in elementary school and said, the Lord told me to do this. Or today, perhaps more popularly, many people live in relationships or in lifestyles that are sexually evil and claim, the Lord has given me approval for this. This is what the Lord said he wants me to do. Psalm 139 verse 20 says this, They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. When we live wickedly, we are maliciously misusing the Lord. There's another way that this happens, and that is when people say, here's what God wants us to do, when it's not actually what God said he wants done. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is asked to do a very hard thing by God. Jeremiah is supposed to be a prophet who tells the people that they're going to go into captivity. It's not a fun message to tell. And so we're not surprised when false prophets arise in Jeremiah saying the exact opposite. There's one named Hananiah in Jeremiah 28. This is at a low point in Jeremiah's life. He's been telling people the truth from the Lord and nobody wants to hear it. And so Hananiah springs up and tells everybody, no, 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 the Lord said everything's going to be okay. 
And because he's misrepresented the Lord, we read this in verse 15 of Jeremiah 28. Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. You have made the people trust in a lie. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. The next chapter, chapter 29, another false prophet rises up named Shemaiah. They sound similar and they behave similar. And the Lord says this of him, because Shemaiah had prophesied to you when I did not send him and has made you trust in a lie, I will punish Shemaiah. Let me tell you, the Lord still cares that he is not misrepresented by people who claim to have an authoritative word from him that they do not actually have. We all have to be so careful in this. I, as a pastor, have to be very careful in this. Right now, of course, I'm preaching. And in the act of preaching, I'm responsible to be a messenger who does not dilute, alter, or remake the message, but just gives the message as the king gave it. But there are other times as a church that we're talking about things that are not thus saith the Lord things. And in those moments, I should not use thus saith the Lord language. For example, sometimes at a church, pastors get up and talk about a building campaign and they use thus saith the Lord language and they should not, they should not. Thus saith the Lord language is for when we're opening the Bible and saying what God says. Something we feel very, very strongly about, maybe that we've prayed about, does not deserve thus saith the Lord language. It's exclusively used for his word. Phil Riken says it this way, a serious way to break the third commandment is by using God's name to advance your own agenda. Some Christians say the Lord told me to do this. Or worse, they say, the Lord told me to tell you to do this. This is false prophecy. God has already said whatever he needs to say to us in his word. Of course, there's an inward leading of the Holy Spirit, but this is only an inward leading and it should never be misrepresented as an authoritative word from God. So remember Hananiah and Shemaiah, when we want to say this is what ought to be done when we actually don't have an authoritative word from the Lord. All right, that's category number one of ways we could take God's name in vain. Now category two is God's name being used in service of what is frivolous. In Exodus 22, verse eight, God says this, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And in Leviticus 24, God says, say to the Israelites, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. So yes, even if it sounds um, obvious, one of the other ways we can misuse the name of the Lord is to profane the name of the Lord in our speech, using God's name in profanity. Over the last week or so, when I've been studying. I've read many scholarly resources, and I've even researched some preachers of a contemporary bent, and I've noticed that they refuse to say that using God's name profanely is sinful. I, I think maybe the reason they refuse to say that is they fear that that sounds unsophisticated or juvenile. But let me remind us this morning that sin always masquerades as sophisticated when it's actually juvenile. That's how sin works. Profanity is never sophisticated. The word profane means common. To use God's name in speech 
in a way that does not have reverence is to lack hollowing his name. So the third category is God's name in service of that which is phony. Have you ever noticed that some people peddle the word of God for their own personal advantage? If you said no, you've never heard a political speech. (laughs) That is how they work. Romans chapter 2 says in verse 23 and 24 how God felt about the Israelites misusing his name. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I think this quote is helpful. Stephen Carter has a book called God's Name in Vain, and here's what he wrote. In truth, there's probably no country in the Western world where people use God's name as much or quite as publicly or for quite as many purposes as we Americans do. Few candidates for office are able to end their speeches without asking God to bless their audience or nation or some great work they're undertaking, but everybody is sure that the other side is insincere. Athletes thank God, often on television, after scoring the winning touchdown, because like politicians, they're convinced God is on their side. Churches erect huge billboards and take out ads in the paper. God's will is cited as a reason to be against gay rights and a reason to be for them. God is said not to tolerate poverty or abortion or nuclear weapons. Everybody who wants to change America and everybody who wants not to change America somehow has a love affair with God's name, which is why everybody invokes it. His quote reminds us that God's name can actually be used for manipulative misrepresentation. This was illustrated in my own home the last couple months. I overheard my children in the playroom, and I heard one child say, Dad told us to clean up. And I heard my other child say, Dad told us to get ice cream out of the freezer. (laughs) One of them was rightly relaying their father's word. The other was using their father's word in vain, falsely invoking his name. Perhaps the most humorous example of this in the Bible is Acts 19. This is a great passage. It's where God has given his name to his apostles to exercise demons. And it's amazing what they're doing. Well, there are these seven sons of Sceva who see this happening and think, wow, you can say Jesus like you say abracadabra and you can get whatever you want out of it. And so we read this in Acts 19. Some Jews who went out driving evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you, come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? (laughs) Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. We read in Acts 20, verse 7, God will not hold him guiltless who uses his name in vain. And you've seen over your lifetime how many politicians use God's name and 10 years later, they got a beating. I love how verse 17 of Acts 19 goes on to say, when this became known, the beating that these people got, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. See, the Lord has a way of protecting his name. 
Now, part of the reason why a sermon like this one, a passage like this one, seems extreme. I mean, who takes care of God's name? Haven't we evolved past that? Can't we just do whatever we want in our lives? Is because we live in a moment of postmodern frivolity. Dorothy Sayers is worth quoting. She wrote this. In the world, sloth calls itself tolerance. If you just remember that phrase. But in hell, it's called despair. It is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there's nothing it would die for. Have you noticed in our culture today that if you believe much in God, you're called an extremist? What is wrong with you? Why would you believe so sincerely in the word of God? You shouldn't believe seriously in something like that. In in a world where we're told not to believe in anything, except, of course, the narrative of those in political power, we actually need to be people who believe more in God, who live more firmly committed to something worth living for. Yes, even a name worth dying for. And this is not a new problem. In 1908, Uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote his book, Orthodoxy, and his takedown of Nietzsche, I think, is brilliant. He wrote, Nietzsche always escaped a question. He said, beyond good and evil, because he had not the courage to say more good than good and evil, or more evil than good and evil. Tolerance is a word for apathy. Postmodern is a substitute for frivolous. But God does give us something to live for, someone worthy of living or in fact, being accused of being extreme for. Look again in verse 20, or verse 7 of chapter 20. I want you to see that not only is God's name to be revered, relationally referred to, and loved and cherished, but the Lord actually does promise to work out justice for those who reject his name. Look at the end of verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. A number of years ago, not too long ago, there was a book written by William P. Young called The Shack. And The Shack made a real splash in culture because it was quasi-Christian. It was ostensibly Christian and it permeated our culture. And there's a key interchange in the book that says this. The person who represents God in the book says this, I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment. It's not my purpose to punish. It's my joy to cure it. Well, there's some truth in that. Sin does have its own self-punishing quality, and God does joyfully cure us of sin. But this is where reading the Bible is so helpful, isn't it? Because in verse 7, we read very clearly that God does punish sin. And actually, deep down, we all want that because we all want justice. And in order to have perfect justice, you need a perfect judge. And praise God, God is that judge. And he does work out justice. Well, I think to understand the third, we need to quickly look at the second. So would you jump up to verse 4 of Exodus 20? Here's how the second commandment is really inseparably related to the third. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity 
of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We live in a cultural moment that's very ironic. We demand that if we express ourselves a certain way, everyone has to affirm what we have said about ourselves. In other words, if I say I'm this, you have to accept that and embrace that. But for some reason, we don't afford that to God. When God says, I am this, we don't allow him to be what he says he is, which is inconsistent and unfair. But the second commandment is telling us that God is not to be misrepresented or replaced with something we make. So why verse 4 says we are not to make ourselves any likeness of anything created. I've said before that whenever we make God in our own image, he looks a lot like us. And then we decide what God can and can't be. Years ago uh, at our church, we had an international student there. And she was from um, the China, Japan area. I can't remember which one right now. But I remember after preaching, I talked to her a little bit. She'd heard the gospel that time for the first, the first time that day. And I asked her, what about the gospel was hardest for you to accept? Because I knew she did, she did not believe in God. Her faith is not in Jesus. And she said, I just could not believe in a God who would forgive the guilty. And I laughed and I said, that's how I know you're not from America. <laughs> because no one here has that problem. But I know an American who was in Europe working on an advanced degree. And while he was in Europe, though he was married, he would frequent the red light district and be unfaithful to his wife serially while he was over there. And someone confronted him about that and said, how can you be so unfaithful to your wife? And he said, because God forgives. That's his job. You see, you see how both people have made God the way they want him to be. Um, there's a, a woman named Christina Cleveland, and she, in the 2010s, worked for InterVarsity, for Crew. She wrote for Lifeway, for Christianity Today. She was a columnist until 2016. And she recently published a book titled, God is a Black Woman. And I'm going to read a quote from page 252 of her book. She writes, more than anything, we must eradicate the transphobia within ourselves and our communities. For if God is a black woman, then she's a black trans woman. Now, when I quote her, I'm not quoting her to make fun of her. I'm not quoting her to be hard on her. I'm quoting her for this reason. I, my heart breaks for Christina. Because if you can make God what you think he ought to be, then can't someone else make God all the things that you hate? If God is the clay and we are the potter, we'll never make him right and we'll only make him like ourselves. What Exodus 20 reminds us of is we are the clay and God is the potter. He reveals who he is. We don't make him what we wish him to be. So verse 5 tells us we should not bow down to something we have made as a counterfeit. And verse 5 and 6 holds intention Two things that we tend to struggle with. Verse 5 tells us clearly that God is a jealous God who does visit iniquity. But verse 6 also tells us joyfully that God shows steadfast love. God is both. And God is both most clearly in his son. Now perhaps at this point in the sermon, someone could be thinking, Josh, this is exactly the problem with Christianity. 
The problem with Christianity is that it means there's someone above me. But I don't want there to be anybody above me. I want it to be me and only me. I don't need a God outside of me. I will look within to determine what's right and wrong. In our modern culture, it's unlike traditional culture. Instead of looking outside to determine what is right or wrong, we tend to look inside to decide truth and then make everybody else embrace it. A good example of how this works is in the stories that our culture tells. As recently as 1964, the original Mary Poppins still worked from a traditional cultural mindset. In that movie, Mr. Banks, who wants to find personal achievement by advancing in his career, ultimately decides that it's not about just what he wants. And he comes home and flies kites with his family. But Disney's come a long way in in 60 years. And so most recently, I think Frozen is a Good example. I've heard it sung enough time. I I know all the lyrics, I think. And I've noticed that in Frozen, which is, I mean, it's a fun movie. I I don't hate the, the movie. But in that movie, the message is the exact opposite. In order for me to live well, I need to look within. And then I need to unleash what I've found within. And that needs to be affirmed and embraced by anyone else. And in case you missed the subtlety, there's even a costume change during the song. So you know that she has looked within. But if this morning you're thinking, well, I don't need a God without, I have everything I need within. Let me just gently challenge that a little bit. First, if you look inside yourself for worth and truth, haven't you noticed that yourself is incoherent? Your deepest desires conflict with one another. And if they haven't, wait a year, (laughs) and they will. But also, haven't you noticed how fragile the self is? There's really no one that can go out in life day to day and say, everybody who I know thinks I'm a monster, but I don't care. In reality, we find our sense of self from what others think of us as well. We have to look without to find affirmation within. Have you noticed culturally that if you make the self paramount, it is socially fragmenting. Everyone then falls into tribes Because if you disagree with my idea, you've destroyed my identity, my very sense of self. It makes all relationships then consumeristic. I only get to know other people for what they give me for my own sense of self. Others have observed this, and I think they're probably right. That's why parenting is so difficult for those living right now because they've been told their whole life, live for yourself, and then they come home to this one person that won't serve them. What do I do with that then? But fourth, living only by consulting yourself is an illusion because we actually all still want someone else to affirm us. So Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it well. Man fashions himself a God after his own liking. He makes it not out of wood or stone, yet out of what he calls his own consciousness, his cultured thought, a deity to his own taste, who will not be too severe with his judgments. He rejects God as he is, and he elaborates other gods, such as he thinks the divine one ought to be. And then he says concerning these works of his own imagination, as Aaron did of the golden calf, here be thy gods, O Israel. The Holy Spirit, however, when he illuminates our minds, leads us to see that Yahweh is God and beside him there is none else. 
He teaches his people that the God of heaven and earth, the God of the Bible, has attributes that are completely balanced. Mercy attended by justice. Love accompanied by holiness. Grace arrayed in truth and power linked with tenderness. God is not a God who winks at sin, nor is he pleased of it. He is not a God who can look upon iniquity or spare the guilty. The philosopher says, yes, a God, if you will, but of a character that I dogmatically set before you. But the Christian replies, our business is not to invent a God, but to love the Lord revealed in the scriptures. So let me give you three final conclusions this morning. First, God's name in its manifest revelation is for our good. Have you ever wondered why God took the time to reveal multiple names by which he is known? Why not just one? Has he not given these multiple names so that we would benefit from knowing the multiple attributes he has for our good? Let me share just a few. Elohim, God creator, strong. El Shaddai, God almighty. Yahweh, I am. Yahweh Jireh, the Lord provides. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord, our banner. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord, our peace. Yahweh Sedeku, the Lord, our righteousness. Yahweh Rohi, the Lord, our shepherd. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. But the second conclusion is this, of all the names that God has revealed himself to us for our good, by far the one we cherish the most is the name Jesus. Why do we cherish the name Jesus above all names? Because he is called Jesus because he saves us from our sin. If this morning you've been thinking like I have, this commandment hurts because I break it. This commandment hurts because I'm guilty And it ends by saying he will not hold him guiltless. And yet I know I have dishonored the Lord's name. So what hope is there for me and what hope is there for you? And we find the answer at Calvary. At Calvary, there Jesus, who is without guilt, is treated as if he is guilty because he takes our guilt on the cross. And one of the ways that Jesus is treated as guilty is that his name is blasphemed. Do you remember at the cross, at the foot of the cross where Jesus hung bleeding, people said to him, if you're the Christ, if you're the chosen one, if you're the son of God, then come down, blaspheming his name. Remember what was tacked above him, king of the Jews. And the Jewish religious leader said, take it down because he only said He's king of the Jews. See, Jesus was treated as if he had no honor because Jesus took our guilt on the cross for this reason. Because if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning, if this commandment is pressing on your heart that you are convicted, that you have sinned. Let me encourage you. Jesus will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Call on his name. Believe in him. 
There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The Christian then is able to sing the words of songs like Jesus, Jesus, sweetest name I know. So number three, final conclusion for us today. Remember, Christian, God's name is our privilege to wear. In Matthew 28, Jesus concludes the Gospels by saying, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, when they are baptized, they are known as followers initially of the way. But then, do you remember what their opponents call them? Christians. What a blessing it is for us to wear our groom's name. The day that you're married, you share a name. You bring a child into the world. They bear your name. It's a blessing and a privilege. But I want to encourage you, Christian, wear Jesus' name proudly, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, whether it's good or received as ill. In 3 John 1, verse 7, we read about missionaries that they went out for the sake of the name. In Acts 5, after Peter and other apostles were beaten, they said they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. Wear the name of Jesus in your workplace, in your neighborhoods. Count it a blessing if people know that you're a follower of Christ. But I also want to remind you that the name of Christ is a gift of grace. In 2013, the Business Insider Journal wrote an article about Michael Jordan. In 2013, Michael Jordan had turned 50 years old, and so they wanted to see what it was like to live as MJ as a 50-year-old. And at this point, he had started his Jordan company. He was owner of the Charlotte Bobcats. He had lots of endeavors that he was working on. And his company, when he would travel overseas with other executives from the Jordan brand, would use code names in the hotel. On the executive team, he had Esty, who used the name Venom. George used the name Butler. And Yvette used the name Harmony. But Michael Jordan, for himself, used the name Yahweh. Michael Jordan then checks into hotels, designating himself as Yahweh. Next month, Michael Jordan will turn 60. His high right reels a thing of fading, fuzzy internet past. But the name that he cares about, the Jordan brand, will one day not be remembered. But the name Jesus is one at which every knee will bow. You see, the name Jesus is not one you can earn. You can't earn Yahweh. And yet the name Jesus is one that is gifted. Revelation 3, Jesus says, I will write on him who believes the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, I will write on him my own name. You know, this morning you can have an identity that never fades and that never falters and you receive it through faith. It is given to you because Jesus has secured its eternal worth. Let's look to him now in prayer. God, our Father, 
I do pray, Lord, that your name would be hallowed. May your name be hallowed in our own hearts, in our own lives. May we think about you in truth, who you really are, not who we decide we want you to be. May we also think about you only in terms of relationship. You are our creator. You are our God. But best of all, Lord, may we know you as our savior through your son, Jesus. This morning, the truth is, I am a sinner who is guilty of dishonoring the name of God. And so I deserve to be brought into judgment. You said you would not hold them guiltless. But the good news for me and for all other sinners is that Jesus Christ died for our sin and he is risen victoriously. Lord, I can't fathom what it was like for Jesus to be treated with such disrespect and dishonor. And yet he did that for love for sinners. Now, Lord, to wear his name is an incredible privilege. So, Lord, may we take the name of Jesus with us. May we invoke it reverently, seriously. And may we show Jesus Christ in our lives by his grace and for his glory. Lord, you would encourage us through the word. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.